All right. We're diving back into the book of James today, continuing in our series. If you've been with us, we've been in it for uh, most of the summer, and we'll finish up here in about three, three more weeks, I believe. And this passage is in your face. Uh, <laughs> you may have thought to yourself, boy, I had a really rough week, and then I just really wanted to come to church and hear, you adulterous people, right? <laughs> Weep and mourn, you wretch, uh, right? Um, <laughs> This is one of those situations where as, as a church, it's important for us to just be reminded that we come, in, we come in under the authority of God's word. On a regular basis, we walk through books of the Bible in order to make sure we are examining all that God has to say to us and not simply picking and choosing. It'd be super easy for me to just pick some sort of positive passages every week and kind of keep the church on a high, but the truth is the Christian life is, is a battle, and we're going to hear that actual language today in this passage that, um, that, that, that requires some heavy time, some heavy thoughts, and some um, challenges. The, the real truth of this passage, though, the scandal of this passage is not the language that, uh, God, that James uses about us calling us adulterous. It's that down in verse 8, there's just a little promise that, uh, that um, you know, was just read through there, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's it, verse 8. Stop and think for a moment. God who does not need you or me in any way, shape, or form. There's nothing about us that adds to God that he's dependent on or contingent on or needs. And yet he says, if you will simply turn your heart towards me, if you will seek me, you will find me. I will draw near to you. That's a crazy invitation, especially after he just called us adulterous, right? This is an invitation that God, when God comes uh, at us with harsh language of scripture. And believe me, I could, read script, I could read scripture. I'm reading through Ezekiel in my Bible reading plan right now. And there is some language there that is that makes today's passage seem like rated G. Uh, I mean, we, I wouldn't read it with, with children in the room because it's that graphic, the language God uses about his people because they were wandering from him. But it was always done, always said, in order to draw his people back. Not to condemn them, but to invite them to call them to return. And the entire theme of the, the book of James is this idea of wholehearted discipleship or wholeheartedly following Christ. You see, Jesus doesn't want us just to profess faith in him, but to actually possess it in our hearts and in our lives. Back in chapter one, he introduced a new word to us that actually shows up today. And this word is uh, double-minded. Uh, most commentators believe that Jesus, uh, James actually coined this phrase. It, and it could be, better be translated uh, double-souled more than double-minded. It's a, it's a unique word that doesn't show up anywhere else in ancient Greek. Um, so he's calling us to not live this dualistic life, but this life that's unified in Christ. You see, we often do the things we don't want to do and uh, don't do the things we do want to do, Right? Uh, the Christian life can, uh, can sometimes be described as a, uh, almost like a dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder, where at, at one point there's part of Bland that is always wanting what the world has to offer. He wants fame, he wants influence, he wants power, he wants resources, he wants comfort, he wants pleasure. And then at the same time, there's a part of Bland that, that wants God and wants God more than anything else in the world. And maybe I'm alone in that, but I suspect I'm probably not. That you at times feel that being torn back and forth in your own heart. And James is going after that today. 
He's going after that part of us that, that can, uh, can drag us back into uh, living in a way that God has not, uh, does not want for us and is not good for us. So today what we're going to see in this, just this passage as a, a big idea is we can't walk closely with God unless we look deeply at our hearts. We can't walk closely with God unless we look deeply at our hearts. Uh, this is not Christian navel-gazing. I'm not encouraging. I think in our culture, maybe there's, a, uh, there's been a movement from you know, previous generations of just do life, do life, do life out here. Don't take time to you know, work through your emotional turmoil or trauma or whatever. And maybe, maybe that's flipped the script a little bit too much in our culture where it's like always analyzing my heart, always analyzing my feelings, always analyzing uh, what my influences are or whatever. Um, that's not what James is calling us to. James is calling us, though, is to have a healthy assessment of ourselves. And the interesting thing about a healthy assessment of ourselves biblically is that it's never meant to stay there. We're supposed to assess ourselves and then run to grace. Assess your, assess your heart. See that it's not fully for God. Repent. Turn away. Submit to God, right, is, is what it's, the, the language here. Mourn, weep over it, but then run to God because he's got grace for you. He's inviting you in. So sometimes the uh, uh, alliteration works. It just works today in this passage. So four points, assess your disordered heart, acknowledge your treatment of God, affirm your only hope, and act on the invitation that God gives you. So let's walk through these. Uh, verses one through three highlight this call to assess your disordered heart. We looked at these verses some last week, but I wanted to unpack them a little bit more because it's, it's, this is the beginning of that internal uh, examination that James is calling us to in this passage. Uh, the, end of verse, uh, the end of James 3, we saw the idea of living under godly wisdom or worldly wisdom, right? And that you and I at any point are being pulled back and forth between these two ideas and these two ways of thinking. The well, Godly wisdom is pure and, and, and peace-seeking and righteous. But then chapter 4 opens with, with looking at these uh, worldly wisdom and what it looks like. Verses 1 through 3, again, what, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with Within you. So he's getting us to assess our hearts. Look inside. You, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So immediately James doesn't talk about this out here. He's talking about the heart, right? He's digging in to stop saying like, it's, it's not just about what the quarrels out here. It's the root of it in your heart. Now, I know you might be thinking, were they really murdering each other <laughs> as Christians? I mean, James says, like, you quarrel and then you murder? Now, I know this is one of those places where context, the Bible will tell you everything you need to know to interpret this. Um, let's just take James writing a letter to a church, right? Two scenarios. One, they are murdering each other. Another one is they're quarreling and fighting. James begins chapter one talking about our language and how to endure trials and then uh, be doers of the word, not hearers only, and then uh, faith showing up in our works. And then chapter three gets around to, oh yeah, you guys shouldn't kill each other. Like, <laughs> there's no way James waits till chapter three or chapter four to talk about murdering each other if it's actually happening in the church. So what's he talking about here? The same thing that his brother Jesus talked about in Matthew, right? Matthew 5, he talks about that where does murder come from? Hatred in our heart. 
And would any of us get up this week, get up right now and just say, nope, don't, haven't had any hatred, no hatred. Don't hate anyone. Don't have any ill feeling toward anyone. And James is telling us here, he's reminding us that the, 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 that itself is murder in God's sight. It's the root of murder. And so he's, he's digging at our passions and, he, and, and he's, he's, he's placing the blame on us. I don't like this but he's placing the blame on us. He says it is your passions within you. This is how sin operates. What happens when someone confronts you about sin in your life? There's usually several instincts, right? One is deny. I didn't do that. Two is to hide, um, like, you know, deflect, hide. Uh, Third is to blame, right? Well, it was this person or it was that person or this situation or that situation. James saying, nope, nope, nope. We're going we're gonna to cut through all that and we're going to look at your heart because your heart is what is the root of your sins. And back in James 1, 14 uh, and 15, he highlights this for us again. Uh, but each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his circumstances, right? no. We're lured away away and enticed not by our circumstances, but our own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to all sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth, brings forth death. So he's highlighting in the beginning of chapter 4 that, that this sin is rooted within us. Your biggest sin problem, I'm not saying that sin, your circumstances may not be leading you to sin. I'm not saying that. But, but your biggest problem with sin is not your circumstances, it's your heart. Seriously, one of, the, one of the, the, the classic ways to evaluate this is to, to say that you were forced to sin by your circumstances is, is to say that every single human being in the history of the world who was in your circumstances would choose to sin. And we kind of all know that's not true, right? We know that not everyone would choose to engage in sin in a moment. We choose to engage in sin in a moment, not because of the circumstances, but because of our hearts. We need to assess our disordered hearts. Many in our culture would blame it on biology or environment or culture, but James wants us to see the truth. This, to remind you, I said this last week, but the word passions here is actually the word, that, uh, the Greek word that transliterates or into hedonism. It's where we get our word hedonism from. And so we're all inherent hedonists. There's actually an interesting, uh, like, idea or topic or, or approach to this that uh, John Piper does called a Christian hedonism, uh, that he argues that God doesn't say stop desiring things. He's saying desire the right things. You should seek all the pleasure and joy you can possibly have in Christ, in God, right? We're all, where it's infinite. Um, but you and I, in our hearts, seek our own pleasure, our own joy. Now, I know this might be uncomfortable, right? Again, you're thinking... I needed an encouraging word today. The encouraging word is that you're not alone today. <laughs> Every person, that person sitting next to you that's saying so, you know, with so full hearted, you are my champion, right? They're just you're like, oh, they're really connected with God. No, no, they, they sin this week too. They have desires that don't line up with God. It's not you. It's not you alone. It is all of us. We are collectively driven by our desires. 
And Christianity doesn't simply tell us to stop our behavior. I think this is such an important thing. Christianity often gets, uh, gets you know, uh, cast in the public eyes. We're like the moral police, right? We're here to stop all the fun in the world, stop people from doing things. And, you know, God just wants people to be unhappy and miserable. And, and it's like, no, the, the primary message of Christianity is not about behavior, about moral behavior. It's about the heart. It's about the human heart that we need a new one. We need it to be transformed. And, and remember, he's writing to Christians here. So I, I just remind you as a Christian, yes, Christ has given you a new heart, but that heart in this world, as long as you're living in this world, is going to be tempted and shaped and influenced by the world around it, by the devil, by your own flesh. And so he's calling us to assess our hearts because we can't walk closely with God unless we look deeply at our hearts. Secondly, we're called to acknowledge our treatment of God. Acknowledge our treatment of God. This, this seems to make an abrupt shift. You know, he's talking about our hearts and our desires. And then verse four, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then he's just, you're like, wait a minute. He was just talking about my disordered desires. Now he says, I'm an adulterous person. And what James is doing here is the most important thing that any of us can do about anything in our lives, and that is to begin to look at it from God's perspective. So James is saying we quarrel, we fight, we long, we, we struggle after things in life. We're hedonists, right? Looking for our own pleasure, our own comfort, our own joy, our own success, carving out our own thing. And he's saying that's, that, that God is not indifferent to that. You need to take that, hold that up to God, and see that it is actually against God. You see, first and foremost, Scripture would teach us that sin is not against other people. It's against God, first and foremost. That murder is murder because God has created people in his image and, and has said, you shall not destroy the image of God in other people. So all sin is against God. And so therefore, when we sin against God in our hedonistic pursuits, we become adulterers. Back in James 1, he reminds us every good gift comes down from above, from the Father, right? So every good thing you have in your life right now, whether it's a, a, a marriage, children, a, a, a beautiful friendship, a, a good job, whatever it might be, all of those things have been given to you by God, and they are for God, for God's glory. He, he didn't give it to you to spend on your own pursuit selfishly. He has given it to you to enjoy in relationship to him. Right, And yet we take these things and then we, we grab these goods and we go, I don't need you, God. And we live as if God doesn't matter. We dismiss him as inconsequential. I don't know if you've thought about it that way. But that's what your sin does. That's what, when you start pursuing your career for the sake of your own glory, when you start pursuing your, your family and like giving your all to your family for your own selfish pleasure, not for the glory of God, you end up telling God he's inconsequential to all of it. It is friendship with the world. And he says it is becoming an enemy of God. The word friend here is not the platonic friendship like buddy, buddy. It has some like, connotations of sexuality here so it's sleeping with someone you're not married to it is it is valuing something or someone else more than god if you want a definition of the world here it's not the physical world there's actually different words in the greek for the word world um, this is not that world this is a world the world as in a system of values ideas and thinking set up against god and his kingdom 
It's a system of human values, ideas, and thinking that sets itself up against God and his kingdom. It, it dismisses God from life. It says God uh, is not consequential to this, whether it be how you think about money, how you uh, work, how you think about relationships. And for the Christian, this is a sinister behavior, behave, betrayal. It is not including God in every aspect of your life. It's, or it's choosing to only have God in your life when it's convenient, right? I want God in this thing because I kind of need his help or it kind of works for me right now, but I don't want him to mess with this area of my life. Worldliness denies the essential truth that we are contingent on God, not him on us. We are dependent on God, not him on us. We need God. He does not need us. So the world is hostile to God. And then it, it shifts in verse five and it seems, and it pushes this relational dimension even more. So it's friendship. And now listen to the language of verse five. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You know, what's crazy is years, uh, many, many, many years ago, I guess decades ago, uh, Oprah was in a, a church. Uh, I think it was in New York City. She grew up actually in church. Um, and she heard uh, the pastor say, God is jealous for us. And she thought to herself, why would God be jealous of me? I can't be. Well, that's ridiculous. And from that point on, that set her on a trajectory away from God. Now, the sad, saddest thing is, her reaction was based on a misunderstanding of what the text is saying. God is not jealous of you as in, I wish he, I was as pretty as she is. I wish I was as smart as he is. I wish I was as funny as her. I wish I was as talented as him. No, that's human jealousy. When you look at jealousy in the context of what this passage says and what all the scripture says about God, it is a righteous and holy jealousy. Let me explain the difference. Uh, a, a unhealthy jealousy uh, for between uh, my wife and I would be that if I saw her talking to any man, right? I get, I would, oh, you know, I get jealous. That's a, a sinful human jealousy. But if I see her making out with another man, giving affection to him that is rightfully due to me, that's a holy jealousy, isn't it? Nobody would go, you shouldn't be jealous, right? You'd be like, something's wrong with you if you aren't. He's getting something that's rightfully yours. And so God looks at us and he's given us his spirit. He's saved us, redeemed us. And then we go, oh yeah, I'm just gonna cheat over here with the world a little bit, God. That's the whole Old Testament, by the way. Over the years as a pastor, I get these questions. Why is God so angry in the Old Testament? He's always angry. He's always wrath, wrath, wrath. I like God in the New Testament. I, I hate to say this, but you kind of just need to read the Old Testament. Usually the people who say that, they read clips of the Old Testament. You need to read the Old Testament because what you will find is God is, is pictured as a husband to Israel. And he is an incredibly patient husband, much more patient than you or I would be as a spouse, right? How long would you let your spouse cheat on you before you're like, okay, this is over. We're done. Don't come back. But God never says that to Israel. Literally, he leads them out of the promised land. They barely had crossed the Red Sea. And what did they do? Let's build an idol that we're a calf. 
not even a bear or a, or a lion, just a little helpless golden calf. We're going to worship that and call that our God. And God is, Moses has gone up on the mountain. He comes down. This is what they're doing. He's like, what is wrong with you people? And yet God is always inviting his people back. You hear his heart in the Old Testament, his heart breaking over the adultery of his people. And I believe God, God feels that for his spirit among his Christians today when we trade him for temporary things. When you and I trade him for temporary pleasures, momentary hopes, momentary dreams, his heart is broken because he gave us his spirit and he grieves and he longs to be connected to us. So we need to acknowledge that. Um, And then we need to affirm your only hope, yours and my only hope. Verse six, think about all James has said, think about your particular struggles that you have. Familiar temptations, right? things that, that weigh on you at times, and, and you feel that. And times you've, you've hated and you shouldn't have, times you responded like you shouldn't have, times you long for something you shouldn't have, ways that you chose to seek your satisfaction and identity in something else other than God. Times you buddied up with the world again. And what does God say in this passage? Five words, James tells us, but God gives more grace. Can we say that together? should be on the screen. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Just stop for a second and think, that's pretty incredible. Who wouldn't be, who wouldn't have their heart moved by someone who you've cheated on, but they love you and they still invite you back and they say, return to me. And they, they have no, they, they, can, they would be fine without you. They have all the resources they need without you. There is nothing about you that adds to them or they, they're not codependent or anything. Completely independent, capable of taking care of themselves, capable of being perfectly happy by themselves. And you've been cheating on them. And then they look at you and say, but if you'll repent, come home. I love you. I'll welcome you home. but he gives more grace. This is a glorious promise in this passage that hopefully leads us back to him. How can we live in this grace? Uh, or how can we live in this like relationship with God? It's to understand that you need that verse every day. You do. You need to keep coming back to when you feel that weight of sin, when, you felt, when you've given into that temptation, when you experience conviction over sin. Don't tuck it away. Just remind yourself, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Now, that doesn't mean don't take it seriously. We'll see that in a moment. But, but understand, he's, he, he's not like, you know what? You should go walk around for a little while. Walk it off. You've blown it. Go do, go do this isn't your high school coach. Go do five laps, right? <laughs> I need you to go wash my car, and then you can come back and we'll talk. No, God's like, come back if you're willing to repent, which is, this is our only hope. This is why the gospel is our core value as as a church. And this is why, by the way, you need a community. You need to be in a community group uh, of people because here's the thing. You hear me say this. I've been to seminary. I've, I've been a pastor for many years, been a Christian for almost 30 years. And yet I forget this. I forget this at times. I forget that God is ready to invite me back in 
And I kind of walk and I'm like, man, just really disappointed in this struggle or that struggle. And God's saying, but I've got more grace for you. And I need someone to remind me of that. And you need someone to remind you of that. And so community groups are, are spaces for people who struggle to tell each other, he gives more grace. And the beautiful thing about it is he doesn't resent doing it. He, doesn't, he isn't hesitant about it. He doesn't hate that you need it again. You ever had that feeling where you've, you've, it's a sin you've struggled with, and then you're just like, oh, man, i got to actually go ask him again? i gotta, I got to kind of confess that again to him? Like, I mean, there's no other area in life that you would, you'd, you, you'd feel successful. If you've uh, tried to get into medical school 137 times, and you keep failing, at some point you'd be like, okay, I just got to give up. Like, I'm not getting in. I'll never get the approval, right? I'll never get that final approval. There's no relationship, no job, no, no career, anything that it, you would fail this many times and feel like, you know what I should do? I should just go back. I should, I should go back to them and try again because I, this time they're going to let me in, right? And God gives grace every time. We can't walk closely with God unless we look deeply at our hearts. So we assess our disordered hearts, acknowledge our treatment of God, aff affirm our only hope, and then finally here, we see his call to act on, a, on an invitation. Verses 7 through 10 are uh, all imperatives. All imperatives calling for an immediate response. This is a forceful, if you, if you heard it read, we'll read it in parts of it here in a moment, but it's very forceful directly. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. He's inviting us. He's saying like, okay, you've, you've looked at your heart or you know you, you have a disordered heart. You know you've committed adultery against God. You've acknowledged grace is your only hope. Now what do you do? What is it that you actually act on to, to experience this. So he begins with, uh, we'll walk through each of these phrases, verses seven, verse seven, submit yourself therefore to God. So the word therefore then reminds us, he's saying, but he gives more grace. Therefore, submit yourself to God. Go back. I know you feel guilty. Go back. I know you feel shame. Go back. I know you, it's the 137th time. Go back. He gives more grace. Submit yourself to him. And I love this. He says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is so, so great. You know, the this tells us some important things about the devil. He is an absolute wimp. He is. We get all freaked out, like, if the devil showed up in a room or something, or, you know, he's powerful. And, and in ways, he is. He, he, he has power. But, when, but all it takes is a little bit of resistance, and he's out of there, Right? Why? Because resistance itself defeats his scheme because he always works in lies. He always works in misleading. He always works in trying to convince you of, a, of something. And the moment you step back from that, that and begin to look at that temptation a little more clearly, he's gone. He doesn't come at you. It doesn't say, hey, you better get ready. Only super Christians are going to be able to stand against the enemy because he's coming with tanks and missiles and, you know, aircraft carriers. You better stand strong to be able to fight back. He says, no, resist him. Put your feet on the rock of Jesus and stand firm, Ephesians 6, and you will be able to resist him. And he, not just resist him, he won't even fight long. 
He's like that, that kid that tried to get into, tried to get you into a, a, a disagreement, a fight. He comes up and he like tries to, tries to get you into a fight and you like quickly realize he's, he's, it's not going to work. So he just runs away, right? He just runs away. He's afraid. He's like, I'm not getting anywhere here. Now, I will say this. It's interesting in Jesus' ministry when early in the Gospels, when he's tempted in the wilderness, it says something very interesting at the end. I think it's in Luke's account, not in Matthew's, but in Luke's account. It says after, after the temptations, the devil left him, and then it says, until a more opportune time. Now, think about this for a moment. Jesus had been not eating for 40 days. Right, he had been fasting, and he was like, "Satan's like, well, I'm going to go look for a better time." I'm like, okay, good luck with that. Um, but, but I will tell you this: you resist him, and he will flee, but he will come back. Temptation will return to your heart, and so you better be prepared for it. And then he says, verse eight: "Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you." So the contrast: resist the devil, he leaves. Draw near to God, He draws near to you. Satan deals in lies; God deals in truth. And so really drawing near to God is drawing near to the truth. The first draw is a command, meaning it is not automatic. This is a shocking but uh, important reality. You can live, and this is important for all of us to hear today. You can live the Christian life, I believe, be saved, actually have eternal life with God, and live a kind of distant relationship with him where you don't experience the goodness he has for you in this world before the, the new heavens and new earth. Now, I don't believe you can give yourself over fully to sin. I don't believe you can, uh, you can lose your salvation or whatever. I think he, he'll, he'll kind of get you in a spot where you're kind of miserable, but you can live there for a while. It's like the, the couple that, that's not divorced, but they don't live together anymore. You know that? They kind of talk sometimes, but their relationship's clearly not healthy or good or normal. It's like, God, God, you can do that with God. So it's an invitation now. He's saying, commanding us, draw near to him. Do you know how much people sought to be near Jesus through the Gospels? If you look at the, the Gospel stories, there's count after account of people who went out of their way to go seek after Jesus. One story early on in Mark, uh, uh, a paraplegic man who paralyzed hands and, and arms and legs, uh, and, and his friends, he convinced his friends to bring him to Jesus. And when they couldn't get him in the house, they literally took him up on the roof, cut, tore open the roof, and handed him on his pallet down to Jesus to, to get to Jesus. Other accounts of, of people who, uh, Zacchaeus, for example, who uh, was, was not a poor man, not a, and, and it was undignified for a man to climb a tree back then, just kind of like it is right now. If you go out front today, you see, we leave, and you see a grown man climbing one of these trees in front of the school, you're like, that's a little undignified. Well, it was even more so back then. So you imagine a wealthy man climbing a tree back then just to see Jesus. We have stories of people who traveled for miles and miles and miles, went out way out of their way into the wilderness, people who skipped meals to go be with Jesus, all because they heard about who he was. And as a Christian, it is not about hearing about who Jesus is. It is knowing who Jesus is. You have known him. And maybe you don't know him well right now. Maybe you're not experiencing that closeness with him. But I would just ask you, what will you do to draw near to Jesus this week? What will you do to draw near to God? Because he's not like, well, I just kind of want to see you do that for a while. We'll see what happens. He says, no, draw near to me. 
Commit a day to fast. Commit a time to pray every morning. Commit to get back into the Bible. I know you, this is the you know, 43rd time you've tried to start reading your Bible this year. Do it. Keep going back. Don't give up. There is more to be had. God is, is more ready to pour out his spirit than we are ready to receive it. We are, he is more ready to draw us near into deeper joy, deeper intimacy, deeper pleasure in him than we are ready to receive it. We think that we can spend 98% of our time going after our own hopes and dreams in life and prioritizing things and then give a few hours on a Sunday to God and expect to live and walk closely with him. No, there's hard work to do. There's work to dig into your own heart. There's a work to acknowledge your relationship with him and how you've treated him. And then he wants you to run to grace and be prepared to stand firm against the enemy. Look at verse eight and nine. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands. This is what people can see, the actions. This is a sign of... um, external repentance. So if I've wronged this person, I'm going to go make it right. If I've uh, cheated this person, I'm going to go fix that. If I blew up at this person, I'm going to go apologize and work to make it right. So it's cleansing our hands publicly. Then he says, purify your hearts. This is our internal hearts, our thoughts, desire, motives. Cast it out. Acknowledge it. Admit it. Admit that you don't want God. Admit that you have this thing in your life and you don't want God in on it. Just confess it to him. And then he says, verse nine, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. What a, what a heavy image, right? Like, I mean, in some ways this morning, one of the signs that God would be at work in this room is if one of you is just like on the floor with your face in the carpet or more of us. That's not a sign that something's wrong with you. That's a sign that something's right with you that you are actually obeying this, that you're so broken over your sin that you just gotta mourn over it. You gotta grieve. Grieve that you've hurt the heart of God. And I realize we t- this is what we, t- we do. We tend to dismiss our treatment of God. Oh, he's God, he can handle it, right? But we need to stop thinking of it as if, um, as if God just has these inexhaustible resources for us to just abuse him. And we need to start thinking of it in terms of, of, of like lying. So if you lie to someone on the internet, it, it's probably not going to cost you anything, right? I mean, no big deal. You might not even think about it twice. You lied to them in an email. You lied to them when you tweeted at them or whatever. And, and so you don't think about it. You lie to your spouse. That might create some guilt and shame, right? Some, uh, and, and, and could cost you something. But if you lie under oath to the Supreme Court of the United States, what happens? You go to jail. The weight of, your, of the, the, the lie is, is contingent on who you lie to. It shouldn't be. <laughs> I mean, we should all feel the same guilt, whether we lie to someone on the internet or whether we lie to the Supreme Court. But the, the way that it's handled, and we would all say that's exactly how it should be, right? Nobody wants the policing the internet where everyone goes to jail if they lie. <laughs> but we would say, hey, yeah, if you stand in front of the Supreme Court and you lie, we all agree you should go to jail. How much more so to God? How much more so when we dismiss him, demean him? We dismiss our kids, we dismiss our, our spouse, we dismiss a coworker, maybe a little bit of sadness. Oh, I shouldn't have probably treated them like that. How much more so the implications of treating God that way? 
We need to cleanse. We need to be wretched and mourn and weep over our sin. And then there's this beautiful promise in verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Today, if you're willing to humble yourself, put away your romance with the world. Cast that out, be honest with God about it. What an invitation. What are you going to do this week that is going to be better than God exalting you? Like that's a crazy thing for God to say, right? Not um, humble yourself and uh, you and I can hang out. He says, humble yourself and I will exalt you. I will lift you up. I will bless you. This is an invitation for all of us to lay it all down for Jesus because he laid it all down for us. You know, if you, if you found a, uh, if you were trying to buy a used car in, in uh, Brookline, you found one for sale and you go and you, you look at it and you pop the trunk because you always got to make sure you look in the trunk, make sure it's, that, that's usually, it'll tell you how well somebody took care of their car. All right, you pop the trunk, you look in there and there is a bag of like, diamonds weighing pounds right and there's a you you look at it and they're all ethically sourced diamonds and there's a sign on it that says for whoever buys this car at that point what do you do you shut the trunk quietly and you say i will take the car well you don't have enough money it's okay i'll be back and you sell everything you have right for that car you would go sell the clothes off your back to go buy that car. Why? Because the joy of having it would consume whatever you just gave away for it. This is the invitation. Whatever worldly hope you might have, whatever sin you're hanging on to is killing you. Whether it's an addiction to success, an addiction to porn, addiction to drugs. Listen, I'm, I know people are smoking weed every night to just numb themselves against life. And maybe that's you. And God's inviting you out of that into a deep joy with him. Will you you hang on to your old broken car? Are you going to trade it for untold riches in Christ? That's the invitation today. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes where you are. As we move into a time of response and communion. I don't want to rush through this. We've been praying today some different moments and I want to make sure that we leave space for you to to confess your sin, to mourn over your sin, to let that spirit gently break you if it needs to happen today and to draw near to him. Would you just acknowledge your sin before him? Whatever he brings to mind, humble yourself before him. Ask him to give you grief over your sin. And then embrace his tender and compassionate grace and mercy for you. is this that you have for us that while we were yet sinners you died for us and even as 
been redeemed and still struggle with sin, still find our hearts going after the world, still going after selfish desires and ambition. You don't cast us off. You knew what you were buying on the cross. You don't resent us that we need more grace. You just ask us to come. Stop acting like we don't. Stop cheating on you with the world. Confess, repent, grieve over our sin. Be welcomed back into the fellowship of our loving Father. So I pray that you would do what you need to do now in each of our hearts, Lord. As we prepare to take communion, we, we don't want to take it with sadness. We want to take it with joy that you have redeemed us. We take it not in order to be forgiven, but because we have been forgiven in your son. The bread being your body broken on the cross. Your, the cup being your blood poured out for us. Cleanse us, renew us in this time. In your name we pray.